You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. Okay, so last week we talked about covenant, and there was some uh, interesting discussion to be had about covenant because uh, the prophet in the book of Malachi was calling out God's people for their lack of covenant behavior with one another. Um, and he took task with, uh, with the relationships that people had in the way that they were basically faithless and thus profaning God's version of what covenant should be between one another, whether it be in their dealings with one another or in uh, their marriages and in divorce. We're going through Malachi, and this, this book is a, a, a prophecy for God's people. It's the last book of the Old Testament. It's an oracle or, or a burden for God's people. So it's a series of rebukes that comes from a prophet for the people of God. And uh, this, this week is, again, another one. So we're reading in, in chapter 3. I'm going to start at verse 6, if you're reading along. Malachi 3, verse 6, through to verse 12. And let's get right into that. This is what it says, starting in 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And therefore, thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine on the field in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, you are the maker of heaven and earth. You are a creator. And this morning I ask that you would grow in us a deeper love and passion for you. So Holy Spirit, would you soften our hearts and turn us to you closer, Lord, even now. We bless your name and I ask that this this message would be truthful of that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Okay, if you come from a church, if you come from a church background or upbringing or you come from a church tradition of any kind, really, you may be familiar with the idea that church people are really bad at change. That churches are really bad at change, that people in churches are afraid of or apprehensive about or they just downright fight change within churches um i was i was raised in church and so i remember hearing 
various pastors at various churches joke about this, right? We, we laugh about it amongst ourselves, about how bad we are at handling change in our, in our church communities. Um, I don't think that this is, you know, just a church thing. I think people in general tend to, tend to uh, like, who struggles with change? Just be honest. Tell me right now. There's a couple people who are honest, and the rest of you, um, I question. But anyways, <laughs> it's, a t- it's our tendency, right, to not want to have to go through changes. Oftentimes, it makes us uncomfortable. Um, so thinking about this, I was reminded of the jokes about how many blank does it take to change a light bulb, right? This is kind of a, uh, I've heard pastors tell the jokes, right? In a Baptist church, I heard the Baptist minister say, how many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Um, one, to change the light bulb, and three committees to approve the change and decide, and oh, and one who brings the potato salad. So that's 15 at least. Um, there's a bunch of these jokes. I'm not going to tell them because some of them are pretty bad, but you can look them up. They are funny and, and in, in some ways quite true. Um, but you get the idea, right? Um, anyhow, the point made is that for some reason churches struggle to change, whatever the case is. And... Uh, I'm talking about this because I, I heard a story last week. I was talking with a pastor who I know very well a couple of weeks ago. And uh, he, was, he had to leave and he said he had a meeting to go to. And I was like, okay, cool. And he said, well, not really. It's, uh, it's a meeting to you know, resolve some conflict. I was like, oh, yeah, that's not as cool. And he said, no, it's... It's kind of funny. And I said, how come? And he said, he started explaining a little bit to me about this, this conversation he was going to have with some people. In this church, they made a change. And uh, so I'll tell you what that was. They, they uh, like most churches, they collected offerings. And in this church, the way that the offering was collected was by uh, passing a plate. Right? It's... If you don't know what I'm talking about, they're usually velvet-lined plates, and they get passed, you know, down the aisle, and you put your envelopes in, and then it's collected at the back of the building. But their church had experienced growth, and they actually were, they were in, like, they changed to doing two services on a Sunday morning and things like this. So, for some reason, um, they came to the decision that instead of passing an offering plate down the aisles, that it would... Uh, just purely logistically, it would make more sense if, lo and behold, they used a lockbox at the back. And I was like, genius, because that's what we do at our church. We, um, <laughs> you know, that sounds like a good idea to me. So, so he said, yeah, we, you know, approve this decision to stop collecting offering in the plate. And instead, there's just a box at the back of the building. Um, fair enough. And like I said, this... This change was implemented not because of a doctrine or, or like a spiritual issue that was happening. They just were trying to, uh, I don't know, make things run more smoothly on, during their services. But it was a change nonetheless. And uh, perhaps it, it was a bit like changing a light bulb. Um, because now, um, he's telling me, this is the issue that... Uh, 
that somebody in our in our church is upset by, and I get to go discuss. And I'm going to be honest with you that when I heard this, that people you know were upset about something which seemed in- insignificant to me, I did jump to the conclusion. You know, I started thinking about how many so-and-sos does it take to change a light bulb and things like this in my own head. This is what I jumped to, and it was kind of arrogant of me. My first reaction was a little bit arrogant. Because I met with him, uh, I don't know, a week later or something. And I remembered what he was telling me about about his meeting. So I I was like, hey, uh, you know, you met with these these folks. How did that go? I was wondering. And uh, he says, um, oh, it actually went really well. Like, it went very well. I said, okay, that's, that's good to hear. And he said, yeah, you know, I, I was there to, to talk about the, the issue at hand, but, you know, at the end we were, we were like family again, and it, it just went so good. So I was like, that's awesome. Um, so he d- decided to tell me a little bit about their perspective, you know, um, the reason that, that the meeting had to be had in the first place. And I'll tell you what that was. Um, the people that the pastor met with, they were a husband and wife, married couple. They were longtime participants of the church. But the wife had been attending this church for quite a bit longer than the husband. And this was because in the past she was a Christian for some time before uh, the husband became a believer. So during that time, when she was going to the church and he wasn't, um, she tithed to the church. She gave a percentage of their money to the ministry to support it and so on. And as you can imagine, uh, the husband, who neither attended or even believed in the church that she was going to, kind of, I don't, I don't know for sure if it actually upset him, but he wasn't totally on board with the idea of their money going to this church in the forms of tithes. So time passed, and uh, the Lord moved in, in the husband's heart, and, and he came to accept the Lord, which is great. And he you know, began going to church with his wife. So naturally, the question arose for him when he accepted Christ was, does my attitude or my concern with you know, tithes and money and stuff, do I have to change the way I think about this? You know, do I, do I adopt my, my wife's way of thinking, or do I still question tithes and offerings and have a problem with it, or how does that go? And now fast forward to last week in the meeting with, with this pastor, and what he's telling him is that he decided to give tithing um, a chance you know, at that turning point, he decided, uh, okay, I'll do this. Let's, I'll, I'll see how it goes. And his testimony is that it changed his life. God changed his heart in the first place, but the tithing and, and giving donations to the ministry changed his relationship with God in as much as that it became a blessing, a blessing to him that he could have the opportunity to tithe give some money to his church. It was a blessing. It was a simple act, but it had profound meaning in this man's life. Okay? 
It was a blessing. God was gracious. So here the couple sits many years later as their church has changed the format of accepting tithes and offerings. And they feel concerned that if tithing is less uh, front and center, you know, in their in the order of their service, that they don't want other Christians to miss out on this blessing that they have had in their lives for such a long time now. It's been amazing for them. So like I said, as I heard this story, I considered it. It became apparent that their testimony, first of all, was a lesson to not jump to conclusions and think about changing light bulbs the minute that someone resists change. Sometimes people have very personal and real reasons that they do resist change. So let's not be presumptuous about that. But more specifically, this story did remind me of of the passage for this morning in Malachi. I knew that it was the one about not robbing God of your tithes and offerings and so on and so forth. And it seemed fitting to kind of share, you know, this is a real person uh, in a real church not that far from here. And this this just kind of happened to come up in my life. And I, yeah, I don't think that was an accident. So I read the passage, the dialogue in Malachi 3, 6 to 12, and it's an invitation to consider giving tithes to God, to give giving a chance, okay? That's what we're going to be talking about this morning is give giving a chance. So let's return to the passage for a little bit. We'll talk about it some more. Okay, in verse 6, we see the prophet begins his rebuke. He's moved on to this new topic, and so he's kind of starting again with the, the, the rebuke for God's people. And he begins it again by proclaiming God's unchanging faithfulness to his people and the direct benefit that Israel reaps from God's faithfulness to them. This is what it says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Here we are talking about covenant again, about God's perfect faithfulness to his people at all costs, at all times. And it's because of this that they have not long ago been wiped out and consumed. God's faithfulness is the grace to live. That's what he's saying. His providence has carried them and their descendants through thick and through thin. But right away, as we read, the problem arises when we're blinded by sin and we say, Malachi says, return to God. And we say, how should I return to you, God? Hmm? Like, what would that look like if I even did that, God? That's kind of how the response goes. So Malachi says, can you rob God? Can you rob God? Of course not. Can we take from him that which is his in the first place? No. Quit acting like all you have is yours just because it's within your reach. Quit feeling entitled to all the things that you think you have. They come from God. God is life. You can't rob him. It's all his. 
The people Malachi calls out are not only running from the, running away from their master, as we've been reading, you know, for about a month now. They're 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 rebelling and running away from him, but they're trying to get away with his stuff too, basically. And that's what that's the problem that Malachi identifies. How foolish! Stop kidding yourselves, he says. God is the source of life, and it makes sense. We read about this in a Christian context in the New Testament in many, many different places. A good place to start for this is James 1, 17 to 18, where it says, and pay attention to the parallels here in James uh, compared to Malachi. James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So the things that you see around you and that you consider are good and that you love are things that God has given you. The things that we call our own, those are from God. The good things that matter to us are gifts from God. We cannot separate these from their source or think that for some reason we've made them of our own doing. That's just not the way it is. So like I said, James is actually, it kind of sounds the same as, as what Malachi is saying. He reminds the listeners that God is completely unchanging And that because of that, the God who gives out every good and perfect thing deserves our recognition that he is who he says he is, the giver of all good things. Okay? So, the commandments in... The Old Testament, I'm not sure if we are familiar with it, but the, when they talk about tithes, that means 10%, literally. And you can read all about it in the books of the law in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and elsewhere in the Old Testament, too. It means to bring a tenth, a tenth of, of what you make, earn your produce, and, and bring it as a sacrifice to God. And in our culture, for us... Uh, cash is king, right? Money is the most important resource. If you have money, you can have anything, so it goes. Money is incredibly important to to us, and for good reason, because it's it can buy the goods that we need. There are a few things that matter more to us in this day and age than money. So the question arises when we read about, um, you know, giving in the Old Testament, giving tithes, Malachi's rebuke, and so on and so on. Do we have to do this because it's an Old Testament thing? It was written in the law, which Jesus came and fulfilled, and we're no longer bound to. So are Christians called to or meant to tithe and give generously?
To this, I would argue that the New Testament does call us to the same standard of generous living and then some above and beyond. Let's read just a couple passages about giving. In the Christian church, after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the church has started, and there's uh, many places where, where the topic of giving comes up, and, there's, and they're very good. Uh, I'm just going to read two. First Timothy 6 says that as for the rich in this present age, charge them to not be haughty, which is proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There it is again. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And then another very popular verse about Christians giving is from 2 Corinthians. It says that the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. You don't have the right to complain because you decided in your heart. (laughs) For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, that's like more than 100%, you may abound in every good work. So you see how the discussion about um, if Christians have to give tithes and offerings becomes kind of dull in light of the New Testament. The question about what we have to do it's not really <laughs> that exciting when, when you start reading verses like these about if we have to or not. It's that we get to. It isn't about if we have to. And again, according to Scripture, our generosity within the church and outside of the church is a thing that we are compelled to do out of love and true worship to the Lord. Giving is not to be a burdensome thing but a joyful and genuine expression of worship. So it's it's easy for someone to say all this, to read this, to know it, and even to say it. But I am telling you that this is a way of thinking that I need to grow in. I have grown in, and I need to continue to learn to think this way and to see my stuff the way that God sees it, in light of him. I'm continually learning about selfless, about joyful giving, not begrudging giving, but joyful giving and worship instead of my desire to be selfish and and hoard things for myself. Anyways, God's talking again about Malachi. God calls his people to turn back to him with faithful tithes and offerings instead of robbing him. No more cheating, no more selfishness. He says, recognize me as God, as the source of life and your provider. He says that he loves them so much that the act of repentance 
and returning to him with their tithes and offerings, they wouldn't only find acceptance and forgiveness, but that God would lavish blessing on them for it. That's a big deal. I'll read 9 to 12 again. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not, it will not destroy your fruits or your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. And God's speaking to very real, uh, uh, life-changing issues that they were dealing with. Their fields and their crops were not doing well. Okay? This is important stuff. He's talking about their lifeblood. So all I'm doing this morning is, is asking us to read this and to consider our posture towards giving. Consider your posture towards giving, tithes, and offerings. For some of us, it is a thing that we struggle with. We struggle to accept the idea of this. And I get that. I really do. I understand. But at the least, I would ask you to put it to the test. Put it to the test. Pray about giving. Ask the Lord to guide you in how you can and should give. And then find out if you would be blessed by doing that. Because God himself says it. He says, test me. See if I'm bluffing or if I'm serious about this. And if he's not bluffing, his promise is blessing to his people for this kind of generosity and and selflessness with their belongings. Um, I told you the story about the people who were concerned with the changes because, you know, tithing had been a blessing for them. I can say the same in my own life. I could, I could tell you of many Christians who I know and, and trust very personally who would say the exact same thing about tithing and offering and the blessing that comes. The nine-tenths is a richness that the ten-tenths has not measured up to in my own life. The nine-tenths is more richness than I have in the ten-tenths on my own. And like I said, more importantly than that, I mean, it's there. God says it. Just, just try. Just test me on it. See what happens. Almost like you have an out <laughs> if this doesn't go well. Um, just see. So anyways, we're, if, if you're hearing this and, and you're like, I do tithe. I am generous. And I know this is an extremely generous and loving and selfless church group. 
okay? So if that is the case in your life, and, and this isn't like maybe the first time you've considered it or struggled with tithing or whatever, wherever you're at, I want us to take the time this morning to reflect and to give thanks for the grace that has brought us to the place that we're at. Like it said at the beginning of the passage, God is faithful. He gives his people life. So we will have communion in a few minutes. Spend time praying about these things, thanking God for his grace in your life. And when you're doing that, you can ask God to lead you in these things, right? To consider it in your own heart, what you would give. And ask God to show you and teach you to be joyful and what that would look like for you. The ending of, of our passage, verse 12 especially, this is the Abrahamic promise to God's people, the promise that God made many, many, many years before this. He made to Abraham that all nations would call them blessed. And this is a verse that we can read in light of Jesus' life and say, yes, absolutely, indeed, God's people are blessed. The Lord blessed them with his covenant faithfulness. He blessed them with his love. He blessed them with the promise that eventually the Messiah would come through them. And that all nations would call them blessed. For from this people has the Savior, Jesus Christ, been born for the redemption of sins. So when we read verses like verse 12, all nations will call you blessed, says the Lord of hosts, or verse 11, the one before it, I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and so on. In light of Christ, this is very, very meaningful to us as Christians, for we know that Jesus, the one who fulfills these things, has come. Jesus has come, and in him we find the power over the things that are killing us, the sin and death and destruction in this world. We find salvation and hope in Jesus' name, and this is amazing, redemption in Jesus' name. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says this, Know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, because he's God, yet for your sake he became poor, because he was man, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Christ, our Lord, his poverty was to walk on earth as a humble man and die the most sorrowful and painful death to conquer the power of sin and destruction in the lives of people like us. 
we take communion and as we do it, we have the opportunity again and again to know His grace, to seek Him for forgiveness and for redemption, for life. This morning as we find ourselves at the cross, reminded of His blood and body sacrificed, that by His poverty we may be uh, truly, truly rich. Come in thanksgiving. Come in worship. 